This last week I came across some letters to God, some letters that children had written to God. And one of the children wrote this. This is from Norma. Dear God, did you mean for the draft to look like that or was it an accident? And from Jane, dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you have now? That's insightful. From Nan, dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? From Neil, dear God, I went to a wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? <laughs> From Joyce, probably not our Joyce, dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> From Bruce, Dear God, please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. <laughs> From Nan, dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all the people in the world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. <laughs> From Rob, dear God, of all the people who worked for you, I like Noah and David the best. And from Mickey, dear God, if you watch me on church on Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes. From Donna, dear God, we read that Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school we learned that you did it. Betty stole your idea. <laughs> and from Eugene, dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was, was cool. It's fun to hear what kids believe about God, what they believe about life, what they believe about relationships. We can learn a lot from children. After all, Jesus said, truly I true to say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The faith of children exhibits an innocence, a genuineness that adults we often lack. Kids just seem to know that God is, and that God listens, and that God takes care of them. Then we grow up, and we start to worry about things that adults worry about, right? We stress over things that our kids never had, as kids, we never had to stress over. That is, if we were blessed to be raised in a godly home where we were sheltered and protected from the world. One of the tragedies of our postmodern world is that through the media, through TV, through internet, through education, through social media, our culture has thrust all the adult stressors and worries onto our children. I received a flyer in the mail this last week that promotes what our next quarter is going to be in our Sunday school curriculum, the Gospel Project, and this flyer had to do with uh, our junior high age kids in particular, because junior high and high school kids are part of what is now called Generation Z, and I wondered, okay, we've reached the end of the alphabet, what are we going to do next, having been born between 1996 and 2014, and the flyer mentions some of the things that characterize Generation Z today. They have always been connected through technology. On the average, they watch two to four hours of YouTube per day. 78% say they believe in God, but only four out of 10 ever attend religious services. 42% think that social media impacts them personally. 76% have a Netflix subscription. The scary thing? You have eight seconds or less to engage them. If you don't engage them in the first eight seconds, they'll be off in their thoughts someplace else. 
In today's world, where the world and all that the world is is thrust on our kids' minds constantly and continually, we have a responsibility, a grave responsibility as parents and grandparents and as a church, as the body of Christ, as we support families to to nourish our kids in God's word and to teach them and train them in the way they should go instead of being so engaged with the world and disengaged with the things of God. Our kids need to be engaged in the things that make for holiness, that make for righteousness, that make for godliness. And they must have the ability to stand in the truths of God's word. And that's precisely what our next Sunday school curriculum that begins this next quarter and the first Sunday in March is going to do. It's going to engage our kids, and it's going to do it by giving them a solid biblical foundation as they are taken deep into the heart of the letters of the Apostle Paul. Because our kids' peace, their perseverance, their ability to stand, and their hope depends on how they are trained and what they are taught and what they believe. And as God's children, that's exactly where we are as well in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5. Our peace, our perseverance, our hope fully depends upon what we believe, is fully dependent upon what we have taught, what we believe, and the Bible calls this sound doctrine, sound doctrine. We are to be nourished in sound doctrine. As pastors, we are to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. We live in that time, big time. Now, if you were to ask many Christians what words they associate with doctrine, you'd probably hear words like boring, (laughs) irrelevant, we tend to be pragmatists in today's world, and we view the doctrines of Bibles as something that only interests theologians or seminary students or, or pastors, the strange breed that they are. We want something practical. We want to know how to deal with the problems we face every day. We tend to skip the doctrine, and we want to get on to the how-tos. Quite frankly, the Apostle Paul would be totally baffled by that approach. He would view it as building a house without a foundation. In all of his letters, every one of the letters he writes, he first sets forth the doctrine and then draws the practical applications from it. In Romans, he spends 11 chapters laying the doctrinal foundation before he gets practical, very practical, in chapter 12. But even within these first 11 chapters, he can't resist, in some instances, of drawing out the implications of the doctrines that he sets forth. And so in Romans chapter 5, he sets forth some of the wonderful blessings that flow from the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which he has laid down in layer after layer after layer in chapters 3 and 4. And so in the first two verses of Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us three wonderful, glorious blessings that are ours that flow from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. First of all, justification by faith gives us peace, peace with God. Secondly, it gives us access to God's grace. And thirdly, justification by faith gives us the joyous confidence that we will stand or that we will share God's glory. 
So please look once again at Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the first verse. Here we see the first blessing that flows from the doctrine of justification by faith. Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first blessing is peace with God. Peace with God is the most wonderful gift that anybody can possess. Now, this doesn't refer to that inner feeling of inner peace or a sense of tranquility that you believe all's right with God and with me and with the world, but rather this refers to the objective fact of peace. There is a peace. It's a reality. Because many people feel peace with God when, in fact, they're in danger of his judgment. They think that since... God, they are good with God. God's okay. He's, I, I like God. I don't have any issues with God. They think that God is good with them. The prophet Jeremiah warned of a peace that was supposedly given by the priest to the people, but this peace only healed the people superficially. It was just like a, only to soothe their sensibilities. They, they didn't deal with the heart and the core issue of sin. It's kind of like the 7th century or 6th century B.C. version of I'm okay, you're okay, we're all good, right? They claimed to heal the brokenness of the people, but it was only superficial. They said, peace, peace. But says the Lord, there was no peace. There was no peace. Genuine peace does not mean just telling people they're good with God but it means that they are truly reconciled to God. That they are no longer enemies with God, but they are friends with Him. And we don't need to fear His judgment because of this. Because of the universality of sin, the human race is by nature at war against God. Many people may feel at peace because they don't comprehend God's absolute holiness or their own sinfulness. But according to John chapter 3, verse 36, because of sin, the wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in and obey Jesus Christ. And then that verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that started off this whole discussion of justification by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This means that Unless people come to peace with God on his terms, when they die, they will face God's eternal judgment. They may be the world's greatest philanthropists, given millions to help the poor. Every once in a while, you see one of these guys gives a billion dollars to do this or that. But philanthropy alone will not atone for their many sins. They might be the nicest and most loving people you'd ever meet. But the niceness and the love that anyone can show will not atone for the many sins that we commit. They may be particular and dutiful about their religious duties, but the most religious people in the world cannot gain an entrance to heaven by their religious observance. None of these things gain genuine peace with God. So how do we get it? To have peace with God, you must be justified by faith. Verse 1 again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith is the, the doctrine that we have been studying for, for many weeks. But let me just summarize it this way. 
A person who has been justified by faith and therefore has peace with God, that is a person who is no longer an enemy with God, who's no longer at enmity with God, but is God's friend, having been reconciled to him, the person who has been justified by faith is a person who personally believes in God, who delivered Jesus over to pay for his or her sins and raised him from the dead to confirm your justification. So why didn't we say that several weeks ago? Because now we understand what it means. You have to believe that deep in your heart, in your inner being, in the depths of who you are to be justified by faith. And also to have peace with God, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ as your redeemer and your mediator. That verse 1 again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means with, that peace with God is not due to any merits or, or efforts on our part, but rather through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross as our Redeemer and now as our mediator. Now here's the cool thing. In the first 11 verses or so of Romans chapter 5, Paul lists eight blessings of being justified by faith. Now, justification by faith might be compared, just as an illustration, to the gift of an admission ticket to Disney World. At least when I went to Disneyland when I was in ninth grade, you bought your admission ticket, and what does it do? It gets you onto all the rides, all the amusements, still got to pay for your own stinking food and everything else. Is that still the case? But the admission ticket said, you can go on any ride. Any amusement here? And I was just, oh, that's got to be the greatest thing in the world. And the same thing with Worlds of Fun in Kansas City. I want to do that again and again and again. So I just keep getting back in the same line and let's do that, that again. They had a, at Worlds of Fun in Kansas City this big boat-like thing that had the Viking dragon on the front. And, you know, and it'd come down the steep way and just hit the water at the bottom and you'd get all wet and stuff. Cool, I, let's do that over again. The omission covers the price for all the rides, all the amusements inside the park, and it's, it's very much like justification. The atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ purchases not only our salvation, but every spiritual blessing, both now and in the future. Remember what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, these blessings are already ours, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How many blessings? Every spiritual blessing. Which blessings? Every blessing. The moment you receive Jesus Christ, the moment you are justified by faith, you have your free ticket. That's grace to every spiritual blessing. Eternal life, the abundant life, hope, peace, joy, contentment, the redemption through Christ's blood, justification, glorification, sanctification, and the blessing that we talked a lot about when we studied the book of Hebrews in our Sunday school class, the blessing of access to God. We can draw near with confidence. And that's the blessing that Paul mentions next in our text in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Where justification by faith gives us access to our standing in the riches of God's grace. Verse 2. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which 
we stand. So first of all, we see that our access to God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if your translation has this, notice that word introduction. We have obtained our introduction. The word introduction in ancient Greek and extra-biblical countries referred to introducing somebody to royalty. In nations in biblical time and in countries today, you just don't walk up to the palace and walk down the long corridor and walk into this beautiful room and introduce yourself to the king or queen, right? You know, you can't even get over the fence very far in Washington, D.C. before somebody grabs you and says, you can't, you can't do that. You need to have somebody introduce you. Other New Testament authors use the verb to introduce to refer bringing someone into another person's presence. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that he might introduce us to God. And then Paul uses the word for our ongoing access. In Ephesians 2.18, he says, For through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to God the Father. In Ephesians 3.12, he adds, In Jesus Christ our Lord, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That means you don't need to have another way of access to God. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. But those who come through Jesus have what? Access to God anytime, anytime, anyplace, any, anywhere. We don't need to pray to Mary or the saints or go through a priest. Rather, we come directly to the Father in the name of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It gains us access anytime, anywhere. The late Donald Gray Barnhouse told a story about Abraham Lincoln that illustrates, the, illustrates this point. There was a southern soldier, a Confederate soldier, had been freed from a prison camp, and he had been freed from the, the federal prison camp because he was too wounded to return to active duty. And he was seeking access to the president to intercede for his brother who was in a prison camp because his brother was now the sole support of their mother. But the White House guards would not let him in to talk to the president. He had no access. And one day, the president's young son, Tad Lincoln, who incidentally had his own uniform. He'd wear a uniform. He had access to his dad all the time, and he was always underfoot. He, would, he, he had a little pony in a cart that he would ride down the hallways of the White House. It was, it was really pretty cool. But one day, little Tad was was out walking near the White House, and he saw this wounded veteran crying as he sat on the bench. And the boy went up and asked him, you know, what's the matter? The soldier explained that he wanted to get in to see Mr. Lincoln, to tell him about his brother, but the guards would not let him in. The president's son took the man by the hand, led him past the guards, who all saluted as he walked in. And he brought the man into the presence of his father. This story illustrates what the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has done for us. We were desolate. We were alone. We were wounded by our sin. We had no way to come into God's holy presence. On the cross, Jesus tore that veil into the Holy of Holies. When we come to faith in him, he clothes us in his righteousness. 
And he takes us by the hand and leads us again and again and again, anytime we have need, into the presence of his Father. What a wonderful blessing to have access to God. Our access to God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, we see our access to God puts us in permanent standing in the riches of God's grace. Permanent standing. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 5. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand, a permanent standing. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you basically had access to what we could call a realm of grace, a dimension of grace. You now live in grace. You're now engulfed in grace. It's a great word, histomy, to stand in the scripture. It means to abide, to be firmly set, to be fixed, to be grounded. The Apostle Paul loves this word. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. And you stand. You know, when we think of the kingdom of God in this realm of grace in which we stand, we're not in this realm, in this kingdom, moving around, wandering around, wavering, wobbling, hanging on to the edge, sitting on the brink, hoping not to fall off hoping that we don't lose it somehow. We abide in a settled, firm, permanent condition of grace, which is the same thing you received when you were saved. That is undeserved forgiveness. That's the realm in which we live as believers in Jesus Christ. But there are those who think for sure that they were saved by grace, but now they got to do certain things to keep that position of grace. And it's not true. It's not true at all. Peter ends his first epistle with a long doxology. To him, and ends it with this, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then he has another thought. I, I figure that Peter is like a lot of us preachers when we say, you know, one, I, now I conclude, and then they go on past the hour and those kind of things. But, but he has a great thought. He just has to add this. Peter adds, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, so, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, in other Silvanus was the, the scribe who wrote it down, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. This is the testimony at the end of Jude, that familiar and beloved benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you, what, stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. How does he do that? How does he get us there? By grace. Our sins never cancel out our salvation because we live in grace. He is able. He has the power. We're held in safe custody. We stand immovable in a realm dominated by grace, which is God's unmerited favor by which he saves us, makes us righteous, and according to 1 John 1, 9, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. We stand in grace, and that never changes. And since our peace and our access, and don't miss this, since our peace and our access is purely on the merits of Christ and his work, it's all of grace, we can't earn it, therefore we can't maintain it ourselves. God does that. 
It's all of grace, and grace always forgives, and always forgives, and always forgives. That is its nature. That's its essence. And the last blessing that Paul gives us in these two short verses in Romans chapter 5 is that justification by faith gives us the glorious, joyous confidence that we will share his glory. Verse 2 of Romans 5 again. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, the first thing is, sharing in God's glory is our certain future. Sharing in God's glory is our certain future. You know, it says the hope, the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope in the New Testament is not something uncertain, like when we say, I, I hope it doesn't snow tomorrow. We have learned this year, at least on two occasions, that two to four inches of snow predicted doesn't mean snow at all. <laughs> right? Rather, hope in Scripture is the absolute certainty because it's based on the sure promise of God who never fails. The second coming of Jesus Christ is called the hope of his coming. Is Jesus coming? Amen. Then why do we hope for it? See how we get a wrong idea of the hope? Let me explain it this way. We hope for it because we have not yet received the promise, but the promise is certain. When I was a kid, I won a bicycle at the Cherry Festival in a drawing. The problem was it was a blue girl's bike. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so I went down to the Western Auto store, which is down on Main Street at the time. Many of you remember Western Auto. Neat guys down there because they were the ones who sponsored the drawing and had given away the bike. And so I asked if I could trade it in, if I could upgrade. Didn't know that word then. That's a brand new word. I'm going to upgrade this bike. So I, I looked through their catalog, and I found this beautiful three-speed bike that was gold in color. Still had my paper route. I'd been using a two-speed, you know, where you crank back on the brakes and it shifts down and, you know, easy to deliver. And, but that had given up, and that was probably my favorite bicycle of all time. But I found this three-speed you know, and I, I looked at all these cables coming down from the brake cables and the shifter cables, and I thought, yeah, I can still get my, my paper bags on there, so I can hold my bike, you know, figured all that out. And I paid the difference between the, the bike that I'd won and the bike that I, that I ordered, and I ordered that glorious gold bike. Same color as our car these days. That, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> the bike was mine. It had been paid for, but it took several weeks to come in. It was mine and it was certain, but I what? I hoped for it. And for what seemed like an eternity, I went into the store almost every day hoping my bike had arrived. I probably drove them crazy. But what does Paul mean when he says that we hope in the glory of God? It means that it is certain we will experience it. It means that in part we eagerly look forward to it, foreseeing the glory of God, but we will see the glory of God. Because it's ours. God's glory is the radiant splendor of his being. It's the visible manifestation of his perfect attributes. It's what Moses asked to see when, when he says, Lord, show me your glory, but God would only show him his back because no man could see God's face and live. But in heaven, we will see God. We will see God, and it's going to be the most beautiful, stupendous sight that we have ever seen. Paul also means that he hopes to see the glory of Christ. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus asked the disciples might see his glory. 
Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle John saw it again in the Revelation. Paul was blinded by the heavenly vision on the Damascus Road. He saw it again when he was caught up to the third heaven. But in heaven, we will see the glory of the risen Lamb who was slain. But beyond seeing the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son, we are promised that we will share in God's glory. We lost that glory as a race when Adam sinned. But when we see Jesus, we will be fully conformed to his image, free from sin and free from every shortcoming. Thus, we're going to be glorified with him. Romans 8, 17. It's our certain future. But this isn't just a truth to grasp with our intellects because it's, it's a doctrine. Because the confidence of sharing in God's glory causes us joyous exaltation right now. Paul says, we exalt in hope for the glory of God. Paul says in Romans Chapter 5, verse 2. And exalt is another one of, of Paul's favorite words. It, it means literally to boast or glory in. It contains both the idea of confidence and joy. To exalt in the hope of the glory of God. It's, it's not just an intellectual truth to affirm. It's, it's an emotional response that we should have. Even as verse 3 shows us, in the face of trials... We are to exalt in, in this glory, the hope of the glory. Verse 3 says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Done that yet today? <laughs> Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Dr. Barnhouse related another story illustrating the joys of heaven. And he pictured a soldier in a cold foxhole eating K rations. The soldier has to stay there day and night to hold his unit's position against the enemy. And one night he hears a voice call out his name and his serial number. It's another soldier telling him, I have orders to replace you. You are to go out on the next Red Cross flight. An order has come for you to go home. You have to go back to your mother's house. You're going to get, they're going to give you a hot shower and clean clothes. You have to go home and eat your mother's southern fried chicken with mashed potatoes and gravy, an apple pie, ice cream for dessert. And the soldier replies, oh, you don't mean I'm going to have to leave this nice fox hole to give, fox hole to give up my K-rations, do you? And Barnhouse adds, we smile at the absurdity of the idea, and yet there are some believers, perhaps some of you, he says, who are unwilling to leave your foxhole in this life to go to your heavenly home, to sit down at the banquet table of our God and to fellowship with him in the joys of heaven. There'll be a great jubilation, longest celebration that all of heaven's ever seen, and I can't wait for that first morning in heaven, over and over and over and over and over and over again. If you can't the again, we say it seven times. <laughs> That's the perfect number. And right now, we're going to do what I have said is the next best thing this side of heaven. Not the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will celebrate in heaven. As we sit down the table as God's, as the Lord's bride and, and fellowship together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
but the thing that he has given us to gather at his table in fellowship, in remembrance of what the Lord has done for us on the cross that we exalt in the hope of his glory. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you that uh, even as we've been studying the book of Romans and leading up to this point and we've been talking about uh, doctrines that is sure and uh, the justification by faith that we have, Father, that Paul paused in these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 to, to give us the opportunity to exalt and, and make an emotional response to all that we have in Christ. And Father, now as we gather around the table of the Lord and we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, I pray, Father, this will be a time that each one of us will come before you. And Lord, we will know something of the glory that we will experience when we gather with all the saints in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.